Welcome to the very first episode of the News Items Podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. I'm John Ellis. And I'm Rebecca Darst. So let me tell you how this podcast works. Every Monday through Thursday afternoon, we discuss stories from John's newsletter, News Items. Most of the items relate to three major storylines disrupting modern life, a world in disarray, the financialization of everything, and advances in science and technology. And sometimes, like today, for instance, we add a side of politics. Today, we have three short items before the break, and then we'll get into a longer discussion about what I think will be the juiciest story. That's right. First, Vice President Harris has been tasked with solving the crisis at the southern border. It's a thankless job, and it may carry much more risk than reward for her. Next up, natural gas frackers are getting in on the Bitcoin mining business. Third, Gallup has polled Americans ever since 1937 on whether they belong to a house of worship. And for the first time ever, the majority answered no. Then, Rebecca, I'm counting on you to (laughs) explain to me the treachery, the lies, the blame game behind the fall of a fund that's much in the news these days, Archegos Capital Management. Finally, we'll close with important headlines from the world of science and tech. Let's get to the news items. First, from our World in Disarray storyline. John, last week, President Biden tapped his vice president, Kamala Harris, to work with Mexico and Central American countries. The goal? To reduce a surge in migration to the U.S. Indeed, the Biden administration expects a 20-year high for 2021 in apprehensions at the southern border. It is an extraordinary challenge. Politico reports on how the difficulties here could be an opportunity for Harris. Quote, any movement in the right direction can be sold as a win. But John, I know you feel differently. I think if there was a win or even a partial win on the horizon, uh, the White House would not have delegated this task to Kamala Harris. I think it would have taken credit for itself. What happened is the, for any number of reasons, The message from the United States after President Biden was inaugurated was, you're good to go, come on in. And so there was a surge of migrants across the border, you know, kids, some as young as 8, 12, and it's become a political crisis for the Biden administration because it's really hurting them in swing districts upon which control of the House will rest in 2022. So what to do? You don't want the president to take the fall. What are vice presidents for? They're there to take the fall. So Kamala Harris has been delegated to handle the situation, which, you know, she doesn't really have the authority to do. And it's an extraordinarily difficult undertaking. An NPR Marist poll released this week showed that just 34 percent of Americans approve of Biden's handling of immigration, while 53 percent disapprove. Even uh, a quarter of Democrats disapprove of the job he is doing on the issue. I mean, one, one of the great fantasies in American political life is that immigration reform is a popular issue. Mm-hmm. It's not. 
you know, there is no easy resolution to this. It's going to take a long, long time. It has to involve Republicans if it's going to get anywhere. Mm -hmm. And the problem there is that the Republican base doesn't want any part of immigration reform. They just want the border shut. Well, aside from the numbers of people that are trying to cross the border, there's also the policy infrastructure around the immigration system, right? I mean, according to figures from the Immigration Policy Tracking Project, the Trump administration made more than 1,000 policy changes to the immigration system during his four years in office. So there was a systemic gutting of the immigration system under Trump. And that's not a 90-day job to turn that ship around. It's a decade-long project, and you mm-hmm. have to break it into parts and successfully do part one and then successfully do part two, and eventually you'll get some momentum. But at the moment, nobody's political base wants to compromise, and anybody who wants to advance, particularly on the Republican side, is going to get a hard right on immigration or otherwise face a primary challenge or face criticism from within the party. So it's, it's just an impossible situation, and Ms. Harris has inherited it. And reporters from Politico (laughs) write things like, hey, a small victory will be a win. You know, it's nonsense. Next, from our financialization of everything storyline, frackers have a new side hustle. In addition to plumbing the earth for natural gas, Quartz reports that they're using a carbon-emitting byproduct of their trade, flare gas, to power Bitcoin mining. A quick reminder, it takes a lot of computing power and a lot of electricity to solve math problems that yield Bitcoin as a reward. This might seem like a win-win. Flare gas accounts for at least 1% of the world's carbon emissions, so it's nice to see it used for something. But Quartz also spoke to experts who say it could be used for things other than powering cryptocurrency, which only benefits a few speculative investors. You know, the thing about the Bitcoiners is that they haven't figured out how to solve the electricity issue. And this sort of gives them a ray of hope that they can at least push the final decision or the final solution down the road a piece that flare gas will produce enough power to keep Bitcoin mining operational until they come up with a grander solution, which I assume is some sort of solar situation. The other thing in news items today, there are two items, one about Visa supporting cryptocurrency and the other about PayPal supporting cryptocurrency for in e-commerce situations. So those are both, I think, big wins for cryptocurrencies. Yeah. And that means more juice is needed to keep the mining going. That's right. So <laughs> we're we're at a point where it's being adopted. And so demand for electricity will increase. Yep. This at least is a very short-term solution. Yep. But what the larger solution will look like beats me. It sounds good in theory. You know, finding a new use case for a commodity that would just go to waste, right? But among climate activists, I mean, they say that the point is not to incentivize extraction. (laughs) You know, if you make it attractive to produce flare gas in order to juice the Bitcoin mining operations, then that creates a new reason for people to extract. 
And that's not what they want to see. There's also, you know, the argument that if you're going to use flare gas to power anything, why not use it towards some computing power that benefits society overall, not just Bitcoin speculators, right? So, I mean, there's a, I mean, there's an argument there to be made as well. Yeah. My view is that the Bitcoin and all the other coins are sort of the children, you know, playing in the living room and the Fed comes <laughs> in and says, okay, you can all go to bed now because we're going to do Fed coins. So yeah. thanks a lot. Bye. Look, maybe they'll be mining Fed coin out in Wyoming. I mean, who knows? It's a brave new world, John. That's why we're why people need to read news items. Yeah. Moving on. Today in our electoral politics basket, fewer Americans than ever are going to church. Gallup has shared new data on declining membership in houses of worship. In 2020, less than 50 percent of Americans said they belonged to a church, mosque or synagogue. That's a first since 1937 when Gallup started its polling. The decline can largely be attributed to the growing percentage of Americans who don't identify with any religion, 21 percent. That's a 13-point increase from the start of the millennium. Membership is also down among those who do identify with a specific religion, and it's across the board. Every generation's numbers are down. John, I know this isn't a question of mere theology for you, and it isn't for me either. Let's talk about what this means for the political landscape. Well, first of all, You know, the weird precision that pollsters insist on, you know, 53% this and 47% that, probably given the margin of error, let's call it 50-50. But it is a marker, clearly. And at some level, it's two countries, right? You have people for whom church is a major part of their lives, and you have half of the country that isn't so inclined. When I was at the NBC News election unit, we did a study of evangelical Christians, and we looked at who the typical evangelical Christian was, and it was a black woman between 45 and 55 years old who lived in the South. But if you take black evangelicals out of the mix and just concentrate on white evangelicals and some Hispanic evangelicals, you're looking at a very conservative, very Republican group. And one of the big fears of that group is that the country that they knew is no longer My observation would be that when poll numbers come out pointing to declining religious identification or declining religious affiliation, that that is galvanizing for the political ambitions of self-identified evangelical Christians because there is a perception that they're under assault. And so then they sort of amp up political activities at moments like that. You know, it is the single most important constituency in the Republican Party. And I think we'll see more cultural wars, not less. And the big one that's coming down the pike is the Supreme Court hearing on Roe v. Wade. And that will be a moment where the evangelical community will look to the court to overturn Roe v. Wade. And if the court does not overturn Roe v. Wade then I I don't know which way things go because there's a 63 majority mm-hmm. that sits there and at least on paper is ready to overturn Roe v. Wade. And I think that's going to be a major political cultural moment. And I think it's in the next four years. You know, it's an interesting topic because, you know, a place of worship is not just a place of worship for many people. I mean, it fills the role of a, you know, political gathering place, a place where people find social cohesion. It's like group therapy for some people. I mean, it, it's it's just a part of American life that has been key to a lot of people's sense of identity. So any shifts are really uh, worth paying attention to and following. We'll keep an eye on it. That's right. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. 
Welcome back to News Items. And now back to our financialization of everything storyline for a story that's rocking Wall Street. Not a lot of people had heard of a fund called Archegos Capital Management before last Friday. That's when the firm had to liquidate more than $20 billion worth of stocks after a large position in derivatives turned against it, and Archegos had to dump stocks in order to meet margin calls. It became clear the fund had taken on too much debt and risk. Now, major banks, Credit Suisse and Nomura among them, are facing significant losses. This one has a lot of moving parts. But before we get into how Archegos got in all this trouble, I think we have to talk about the man behind it all, Bill Wang. That's right, Bill Wang, former hedge fund manager, formerly of Tiger Global Management. In fact, Archegos used to be called Tiger Asia. But the fund was renamed after a guilty plea on criminal fraud charges for using insider information from investment banks to profit on securities trades back in 2012. So this is a fund that has had some, shall we say, compliance issues in the past. Archegos itself was structured as a single family office, and that is absolutely critical to understanding what happened here. Single-family offices are funds that are used to manage the wealth of an individual family, which can be quite vast. This is a, a segment of the financial market that has grown markedly in recent years. Assets under management in SFOs is up something like 38% to nearly $6 trillion. This was as of 2020 data. The reason why this is significant is that single-family offices are exempt from many broker-dealer laws. They have Securities Act exemptions. As long as they have no clients other than the family, as long as the fund is owned exclusively by the individual family, and as long as it's not representing itself to the public as an investment advisor. If a single-family office meets those three criteria, they have almost no regulations whatsoever. <laughs> so what happened here with Archegos is that the fund was heavily exposed in the derivatives markets using, we don't have to dive into the weeds here, using swaps, total return swaps, as well as contracts for difference, which are a form of option usually used in commodities or FX trading that are not legal to trade in the United States. Archegos had significant positions in those instruments. Its market position turned against it. It had offset some of those positions using listed stocks, primarily U.S. and Chinese listed firms. The company failed to meet a margin call with some of its prime brokers. Some of their counterparties, which were major banks, freaked out a little bit. <laughs> uh, unwound those trades on Friday using a number of block trades that hit the market during regular trading hours. This created selling pressure in the broader market. There must have been a magic moment when they realized that, oh my God, he's not just levered with us, he's levered right. all over town. There was a great write-up in Bloomberg, it was out today, breaking down the series of events. Middle of last week, several of the big banks got together to discuss an orderly unwinding of the Archegos trades. Again, this was in the tradition of you hold while I sell <laughs> in the <laughs> game of chicken between these major banks. I think a couple of them jumped the gun and dumped these block trades on the market on Friday, not wishing to wait for the market to turn against them and take a loss on some of these trades that they were uh, unwinding. It's just a classic Wall Street scene. Yeah. Run for the fire exits. Is there systemic risk here or are the primes sufficiently capitalized that the shock absorbers, so to speak, can withstand it. There, there are a couple issues here. Does this specific family office represent systemic risk? Probably not. 
are there other exposures in other family offices that could pose a systemic risk? Maybe. I think something that this has drawn attention to is how heavily leveraged and how little oversight there is on this particular corner of the financial markets, which has ballooned in size in recent years. So there's the single family office question. Then there's also the issue of like Credit Suisse and Nomura. Credit Suisse's, I think their exposures to this office alone are expected to total three or four billion in the range of three to four billion dollars. That's not including their additional exposure that they have to the floundering supply chain finance institution, Greensill Capital, which could put another couple of billion on that tab. So they could be in some trouble. Mitsubishi UFJ, I think, has a $300 million loss from an unnamed U.S. client, which is believed to be (laughs) Arkeo's capital management, although that has not been confirmed, although the firm says that does not have a material impact. Usually when a large block trades that could have like a major directional impact on the market, that trade is executed after hours and may be reported to a trade reporting facility, you know, like the uh, FINRA tape or something like that. That didn't happen in this case. The way that the uh, that the sell-off occurred last Friday, it suggested that these block trades just hit the market, like somebody almost sort of freaking out, like just wanting to uh, drop these positions like a hot potato, so to speak. And that's why it moved the market. And it was almost a case of, you know, wanting to be first out the fire exit. It's just a fabulous story. And I only wish that we could have been in the room when all the banks got together and realized how much leverage everybody had taken on. It's almost a perfect storm. It's like it comes from this, you know, family office that has this particular regulatory setup using instruments that are not legal to use in the United States, but, you know, they weren't being used in an improper way, so to speak. But, I mean, you see the kind of damage that this kind of activity can uh, unleash. And wonderful fodder for Senate committee hearings as well. Mm -hmm. I imagine Sherrod Brown from Ohio and Elizabeth Warren in Massachusetts will be given a lot to uh, work with. I think there's going to be a real postmortem on... The risk management in this case, because even though Archegos was structured as a as a family office, the head of the fund has a prior infraction history in insider trading. You would think that that would raise the eyebrows of you know compliance department. I mean, where was the risk management in this situation? I don't know. I wonder if that's if this is going to be a, a wake up call for the culture around single family offices, because there is an air of you know, privacy and insularity and separateness. And this is going to shine a light on that corner of the financial market. That's for sure. All right, Rebecca, I think we're done with our Kegos, at least for the time being. For today. Uh, It may be that we come back to it again and again. But for now, let's move along. And now for our science and tech headlines. First up, Facebook announced plans yesterday to build two new submarine cables connecting North America, Indonesia, and Singapore. Google's also signing on to the project, which the Financial Times reports will boost internet service for Southeast Asia's biggest economy and the world's fastest-growing population of smartphone users. John, what's your quick take? Google and Facebook are laying fiber all around the world. And the more fiber they lay, the more political clout and leverage they have. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's not just good for their business. It's good for their political clout in capitals, both Washington and around the world. Indeed. You know, it's funny because one of the most important metrics for the success of a multinational oil company does not appear on its balance sheet, and that is its level of influence with foreign governments and the jurisdictions in which it operates. And I wonder if we're headed to something similar with Google and Facebook as it pertains to telecommunications infrastructure. It's very hard for 
Indonesia to say, you know what, we don't like Facebook anymore. Mm-hmm. If Facebook has the cable that attaches them to the World Wide Web. So it's both good for the business and it's very good for political leverage. Right. And now for some good news in the battle against the pandemic. The latest survey from the U.S. Census Bureau shows that fewer Americans are reluctant to be vaccinated, down from 22 percent to 17 percent in the last two months. The Wall Street Journal reports the percentage of people saying they definitely won't get the vaccine has stayed pretty even, but fewer said they probably won't get it. The trend is based on two surveys, one from January, the other from early March, and showed that vaccine hesitancy decreased in southern states where it still remains highest. As for the host of news items, I'm fully vaccinated, and you're halfway there. I am halfway there. April 14th, jab number two. Looking forward to it. Until then, (laughs) we'll be back tomorrow with another show. For more insights into the global market of things, check out Rebecca's website, which is fabulous. It's investableuniverse.com. Thanks so much for listening to News Items, the podcast. But you should also get the newsletter on Substack. Just Google the words Substack News Items and it'll come right up. News Items is produced by Christian Castro-Russell, Pierre Bienname, Anna Mazarakis, and Ali Rogers. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. We'll be back tomorrow afternoon with more of the news from our three major storylines, the financialization of everything, a world in disarray, and advances in science and technology. See you then. 